And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. That's right. And today we told you we may not read Kayaki. Is that the name? Kaikei by Vashnavi Patel is the book that we originally thought we were going to be reading. But we're not. Surprise! Nope. Instead, we are reading a speech that I heard while listening to Democracy Now. It's called We Need Ceasefires Everywhere, and it's by the Bishop William Barber. Yeah, Bishop William Barber. Maggie, what did you think of this speech? I had no context for really what it was when you sent it to me. We just kind of were, we had to pivot last minute as sometimes happens. So I, I really had no idea what to expect. And then seeing the context for the speech that was provided by Democracy Now! ahead of time, I was a little bit nervous going into it about what we were going to see. And then I actually genuinely ended up being kind of pleasantly surprised by the messaging of the speech, the fact that in talking about a need for ceasefire, it went beyond just talking about the war in Ukraine, even though that was central to what was happening based on the political call for ceasefire by Putin at the time that was kind of being referenced here. And I think that Barber was really wise to use ceasefire as a, as a kind of metaphor and to use war as kind of a metaphor for larger injustices happening in the world. And... While I appreciate the fact that ceasefire in Ukraine and Russia probably won't actually solve all of Ukraine and Russia's problems uh, in terms of nuance of the actual political and diplomatic situation, and at the very least, the Ukrainian people that were cited at the beginning of the Democracy Now! article that we read that the, the call for ceasefire wasn't necessarily taken very well by everybody, I do think that the overall message that was being put out in the speech was a very positive one that really made me think differently or not differently but aligned with a lot of how I think about the world and also did make me think about the way that globalization has I don't know expanded over the last hundred years or so. Thank you I'm very glad that my surprise speech resonated well I was a little nervous. I guess I'm going to start with some personal context so I listened to this speech last week, and because that's to give everyone a background, even though we're recording this on January 12th, last week, Russia wanted to extend a ceasefire on the war during Orthodox Christmas, and that was received poorly because it was to save Russia's ass. So yeah, Russia wanted to declare a ceasefire. Ukraine was like, nah, that's just so you can save your ass on this war that's causing you a bunch of money that you shouldn't have started. Anyway, this was a bishop's take on it, and he happens to work for the Poor People's Campaign. So he might have some sort of agenda, but listening to this speech 
was just mind-boggling to me because it really helped me center in on this idea of radical peace. And I feel like throughout this podcast, Maggie and I have been on a journey, like much of the rest of you, I'm sure, watching the world kind of slowly fall apart and slowly radicalizing in our own ways and deciding, hey, this system is broken. Maybe we can look at these texts and learn how to build a better system, right? Throughout that journey, I feel like a lot of what we've talked about has been very war-centric. This system is broken. When are we going to do something about it? Let's get on our fighting faces. And we've also talked a lot about survival. So this idea of radical peace felt really revolutionary to me, even though it's a kind of older 60s, 70s-ish hippie era idea. And yeah, I don't know. I I just really loved this idea of ceasefire too, to introduce this concept of maybe the world that we want has to be transformed through us being like, we're not going to stand for war. We're not going to stand for poverty. We're not going to stand for racism. And we're going to do that through love. Yeah, absolutely. Although I do, just for clarity's sake, want to say that the speech was given on Christmas Eve. So before Putin's ceasefire, because it was a whole callback to the World War One Christmas Eve ceasefire, that was the whole impetus for the original speech. So the democracy now is kind of tying these two things together, which is an inherently bad thing. But I do, I do just want to say that. In the article, specifically, it says... During an event organized by the repairs of the breach, Barbara gave a sermon on Christmas Eve titled No War, A Moral Call for a Christmas Truce. After reflecting on the Christmas truce in 1914 during World War I, Barbara said now is the time for a ceasefire in Ukraine. Boy, but he mentions in his speech, boy, so you're talking about December 24th of last year, a month ago. Okay, 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 okay. I understand. Yeah, no, but I just wanted to say because the ceasefire, the call for ceasefire happened last week. So yes, that this happened, the speech was given the week before the call for ceasefire. Okay, this does change everything in my understanding of it. Does it? A little bit, a little bit. Because I thought that he was, I thought that the call of ceasefire had already happened. And I thought he was referencing... Zelensky's response to that. It it ended up being a preemptive call. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, <laughs> let's talk a little bit <laughs> about the form used within this speech, if you don't mind. Because I found that really interesting. I don't have any thoughts on that. So I think that you're going to have to kick me off there and then I can riff off you. Okay. Well, so... I really appreciated listening to this speech, and I listened to it twice because William Barber has a frankly gorgeous voice and is just a fantastic speaker, and that kind of affects my understanding of his persuasive techniques when giving this speech. So actually, Kevin and listeners, if you if you could insert here 10 seconds of the speech, I would really appreciate it. And listeners, please go to our show notes and stop what you're doing and listen to the speech before we dig into it. We desperately need a ceasefire and negotiations to end the brutal Russian war in Ukraine today. Like Rachel in the Bible and Pope Francis 
who just the other day wept in public over this war. We must mourn publicly over the war. And something is terribly wrong in our churches and how does the worship if we try to have Christmas without doing that. William Barber does it kind of as you might if you were a church minister. He gives this speech in this very religious tone. He is a bishop. It makes sense. But he's consistently referencing the Bible and then toward the end references God. And I find this a really important persuasive technique because he's immediately drawing in people of faith as he talks about this idea of peace, which generally requires a lot of faith. So he does several things like that, and that's just one of my thoughts on form, but I want to hear your response to this concept first before we delve into some of the other form things. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. Democracy Now! describes it both as a speech and a sermon. So I kind of went into it assuming that it was, I, I went into it expecting a sermon, right? So I knew it was going to be very religiously tied. I think part of the reason I was pleasantly surprised was that while he does actively reference the Bible and he does make lots of connections to God and to faith in general, it was actually in many ways a very secular speech, very, very grounded in reality, which I think was a wise choice on his part, probably knowing that it was a speech and a sermon that was going to reach wider audiences than maybe his his typical audience, his typical parish. He's a bishop. I don't really know if he's, you know, got a parish, so to speak, but you get what I mean, right? He, I think, really smartly tied in so much real world tangible context that I feel like this is a sermon that reaches the secular and the non-secular equally, the religious and the non-religious. I felt, you know, initially, because a lot of the religious aspects of it bookend the speech, it starts very based in the Bible, and then it ends kind of with a call to God as part of the call to action. So initially, I went into it a little like, oh, gosh, am I going to connect with this? And then by the end, I was totally on board. Even though I'm not religious myself, I was really able to connect with the things that he was saying. And I will say, as, as much as I'm sure it was an even more powerful experience to listen to it, I just read the transcript of it. And even so, I really felt the power of persuasion. I think he he layered his arguments in a very clever way. He really starts very honed in on on Ukraine and Russia and starts honing in on the fact that people are suffering and the the human cost of this war is so so high which I think is something that pretty much everyone can can relate to can see and feel sad about and then he expands it out little by little in a way that talks about globalization in a way that talks about poverty in a way that addresses the fact that even in comparison to first to World War One, which was really, in many ways, the first war that was at least about the entirety of the Western world and parts of other other areas of the world as well, you know, in many ways, in our modern and our contemporary context, every war is a world war when nuclear armistice is at stake, when war is such a driver of climate change, as he mentions both of these things. He really takes it and just contextualizes it in the way of why everybody should care, why everybody should care not just about Ukraine, but also about Yemen, about Sudan, why people should have cared more about Syria. And 
I just think that that layering, that aspect of form as well was really wise because he starts with the, in this case, semi-local, <laughs> as local as you can get when you're really talking about two countries, and then just expands it out and expands it out and keeps the humanity at the forefront of every aspect of his argument. Yes, I agree. I think part of the reason why the religious aspect feels so big to me is we're we're recording this close to MLK Day, and when this episode comes out, it will come out on MLK Day. And this speech kind of, even though this existed during a time I wasn't alive yet, really hearkened me back to the idea of religion and and churches as a force of radical change for a more peaceful, Jesus-approved world. (laughs) Because we look at the civil rights movement and we see all of these churches stepping in. My point is, there were all these great civil rights movements. And I think think Maggie and I have both been pretty honest about our reluctance to participate in mainstream Christianity, I think, or the fact that we, we aren't we, we just aren't Christians and we live in a world that is predominantly mainstream Christianity. And I think it's really hard, especially right now, because a lot of the things that are going on in the United States in terms of fascist conservatism sprung out of evangelical churches and movements. And I don't know, it was just very refreshing to hear this speech and be like, we could... We could use things like religion, like faith, like the Bible, and turn it into a change maker. It's something I think a lot about right now, especially because I'm personally working in a really super heavily Catholic community. And sometimes I feel my own personal resistance to it. But a lot of what's said and a lot of what's done there is positive and in terms of community building. And it could be so much more if we had more people like Bishop Barber writing these speeches. And the fact that it is secular, too, is grounding, right? Because you can believe in things like Jesus and Christ and the Bible and still be grounded in our current world and politics. So that was part of my my thoughts on form. I guess another thought on form that I had, I think the big, big one, is towards the end... So we start in sermon land and then towards the end, because you have to remember that this speech is given at a poor people's campaign march or something. So towards the end, it starts to get into a rallying cry. If we can put our weapons down for just one night, then maybe we could put them down for one tomorrow. And if we could put them down for one tomorrow, maybe we could put them down for one week. And it goes on and on like that. But that to me was interesting because He's not just a bishop, he's a part of this kind of leftist institution that's working to help poor people along around the globe. And that brought back a little bit of the radicalness, you know? Like, we're not just talking about love and peace. You need some sort of fire here. But maybe that fire can be love and peace, you know? Yeah, I think that one of the things that struck out, there were two things that you touched on that really struck out to me as being extremely powerful parts of this speech. The first is that Barber calls upon the words of MLK himself, and he talks about the the words that MLK had about the fact that war basically 
in his mind, in the middle of the 20th century, remember speaking, you know, only two decades after World War II as well, could no longer be considered a necessary evil, essentially, could no longer be considered that there was more good coming out of it than harm. And it was because of weapons of mass destruction. It was because of the amount of suffering that was being inflicted. And when you take that now and you put it into a 21st century context, to me, that just really struck home so much because so much of war is justified by this idea that something better is going to come of suffering. And I don't want to make any blanket statement about it, but I think it is pretty clear that the suffering that can be inflicted from one human to another right now with our current weapons capability is so high that for me, at the very least, I can see no no sort of good that would justify it, right? That really struck me. And then the second thing that really struck me is that same paragraph that you were reading from, where he ends it by saying, we have power to stop the madness. We can stop it today. We can stop it tomorrow. And I think that that was very... It was just a really wonderful way to mostly end the speech. It was a really wonderful way to end this call to action. And I think it's also a reminder that there's power in solidarity and that solidarity can be global. I think in in a lot of ways, I think a theme that you and I have been exploring unintentionally this season is about moving beyond a U.S. context and thinking more globally about anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism and things of that nature. And I think that Barber's speech kind of really fits right into that, right? To say that collectively as humans, we have the power to tell the people who run the world that we are not, we're not down for war. And also as U.S. citizens, we have the power to tell our government that an $858 billion defense budget, when people are dying, when people are are, are experiencing homelessness, when people don't have health care, is untenable, is against the values of this country. And I think that ending with that that idea that we have power was powerful. It worked for me. I will say, though, I do think that I find attention in this speech, especially when you put it into context that Democracy Now! did with the fact that a week later, a ceasefire was called for and it was, I think, very understandably received poorly, right? So I think that something that I'm really thinking of here is the difficulties and nuances when you take idealism and then have to put it into the real world, into real world contexts where people's motivations are often terrible. And I don't blame the Ukrainian people who were earlier in this article citing not trusting the idea of a ceasefire, not wanting to back down because they think that the ceasefire would be broken, you know. So I really struggle, I think, right now between feeling very empowered by a lot of this speech and feeling very, yeah, this idea of radical peace is exactly what we need. And then also feeling the tension of really sympathizing with the Ukrainians who were cited in this article, who wanted to keep fighting, who are ready to just kind of take back their homeland once and for all in a ceasefire in their eyes wouldn't help them accomplish that, you know? So I think that that's something that I'm wrestling with in a lot of my life, though, is how do my ideals actually translate and how do my morals and ethics actually translate to real life when the reality of every situation is so much messier, you know? Yeah, I don't know if I have a lot of good context, but I feel like there's a, I feel like there's a great secondary quote in this speech where they quote, They quote Zelensky himself. So I think that the quote that Harmony is referencing in the speech says, he said, being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. This must be deeply wrestled with in this complex and contrary world. Yeah, I keep coming back to that quote. And I think that that, to me, describes kind of this 
general angst of where do my ideals and actions merge and how do we do that when the world is so difficult and messy? I think part of that, the first part of the quote talks about being the leader of the free world. And I think for me, that's kind of my first step where I'm like, why am I, what is my, what is my intention here by doing this thing? Am I doing this for, does this have genuinely good intentions or is this me trying to do my, you know, my savior complex thing, which I think that the United States has. I think the United States also has a savior complex, as does Harmony Birch. So there we go. So (laughs) first step is what am I, why am I, why do I need to be the leader of the free world? And maybe the answer is because someone has to. We all need to start stepping up and being leaders. And if that's the answer, then we look towards this peace idea. How do we create that peace? And then Zelensky, I think, especially within the context of what I've seen from him in the public eye, he kind of hints at the fact that sometimes that means we need to fight. But that is contrary to this speech because Barber also cites people who are talking about, he cites Martin Luther King and talks about how there is no way to justify a war anymore. So I think part of that needs to be then how do we make our actions not war, right? And I think within this speech especially, and I mean having listened to the Democracy Now! segment (laughs) twice, I don't think that Democracy Now! was trying to, or that this speech is minimizing the Ukrainian people and their feelings and how Russia is handling this. And I I think everyone's pretty honest about how, how how much Russia sucks in this scenario. And I don't think anyone's judging the Ukrainians' people and, and their feelings here. But I think... I think in practice what that looks like, like where this speech leaves me is, yeah, how do I fight without creating war? And and how do we define war in this context? Because as Maggie pointed out, in terms of form, Barber is going beyond just wars with mass destruction weapons or, or, or wars where there is deliberate massive killing or violent massive killing. He talks particularly a lot about the war on poverty, right? And the reason why a lot of people in the global south are neglected and how that has to do with racism. And how all these things, all of these injustices are a war because they're systemic in a way. Because there are systems violently oppressing people. That's that's my solution is to ask, am I being a savior? <laughs> Just to recap, am I being a savior? No, I'm being a leader because someone needs to, and this isn't a selfish thing to up my ego. What does peace mean in this context, right? How are we supporting peace here? And then third, how are we fighting in a way that isn't creating war? Yeah, and I and I do want to say I don't think that any any I don't think that any of the way that any of this was framed is judging the Ukrainian people by any means. It just it but it was used as a juxtaposition, right? Because the you start with with some very op- opposing quotes to the nature of the speech, and it's understandable why. It's just interesting. I think for me, something that this also really sparks is this idea of wrestling what it means to be a global citizen. 
understanding that in this day and age, almost everything that happens in the world is going to have some sort of effect on you. But also, I mean, I'm a white person living in Seattle. The war that is currently happening in Ukraine and Russia, the impacts that are happening on me are few and far between ultimately. And is it really my job or my place to pass judgment on a conflict that I have no skin in the game with that I'm watching completely from an outsider perspective? I think sometimes the answer is yes. But we do have skin in the game because our budget is going toward this war. We're the primary, we're the people providing the weapons. (laughs) Yeah, I was getting there. (laughs) I think that, I think that the answer is yes. I kind of for what Harmony just said, because because the U.S. military is so ingrained in basically everywhere that's happening in the world, especially right now and most publicly right now in the Russia-Ukraine war. But as Barber says, you know, there's so many there's so many wars being fought in the world where both sides are using U.S. military weapons. And also, as Barber says in the speech, he doesn't go as far with this is I would have or as I would have liked to see him. But he also talks about the fact that the U.S. is at fault for so much instability in the global south, for so much instability all over the world. That kind of skin in the game. Yeah, I I, I feel perfectly comfortable commenting on. But the kind of skin in the game where I feel like I can sit there and tell Ukrainian people how to feel, that's not my job. That's not appropriate. I would never... I would never dare to, right? And so I think that that's the that's the ticking point for me, right? Of wanting to so wholeheartedly be be behind this speech and feel it in my bones, and yet know for me that it feels a little bit hypocritical because I've never lived in an active war zone. I've never been in this kind of danger before, and I wouldn't know how to feel if I would if I could really stick to my guns on this one. If that kind of danger ever came to my doorstep, you know. So I think that in that sense of navigating global global citizenry, it's about understanding, I think, especially in the U.S., the way in which our com- our country has such impact globally. And it's not just about nuclear armistice. It's about the fact that we are, our relationship with NATO is overpowered and complicated. It's about the fact that our military is the largest in the world by an insane amount. And as Barber says, militarism is central to all of the interconnected injustices that we fight against. So it's also about that skin in the game of understanding that by continuing to put our morals and our values in military in the US, we are also then co-signing basically every other injustice that's happening in the world. So to me, I think that that's where some of this nitty gritty happens in terms of global citizenry, that I sometimes need to talk through to get to the places where it's like, yeah, I do really have an opinion on this. And I think that this is an opinion is valid for this reason. But also, I wouldn't tell X person how to feel in Y situation at the same time. My global citizenry doesn't extend to that level. Yeah, bro. Mine doesn't either. But I thought it was a really great speech. Yeah, it was. And I, and I think that the fact that it was a speech that inspired this level of thought and this level of depth and this level of internal tension means that it probably accomplished what it set out to accomplish. Yeah, I felt like it had a lot of persuasive techniques. I felt like he was very deliberate in the quotes that he chose. I felt like it did a great job of bringing people in. And the calls to action, I felt like, were could be applied to people regardless of your current really highly polarized political leanings, you know? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. 
Oh, I had more to say. It went totally out of my mind. Goodbye, thoughts. Absolutely gone. <laughs> I think that we're getting ready to wrap up here. This has been your MLK version of Rebel Girls Book Club. <laughs> Love and peace. <laughs> it's been a minute since we did an episode where Harmony and I play active being political commentators, but uh, we're back, baby! <laughs> I didn't even mean to politically commentate. I just really loved the speech. It was like, we should analyze this. That was all Maggie. Maggie did all the political commenting this time around. How the turns have tabled. All right, Maggie, uh, next week, are we going to try reading that book? I need to get it from my library, so I should probably do that soon. I would say if you don't have it yet, let's not make any promises because it's 600 pages. So you, you, you'll hear from us about what we're reading and we will read Kaikei at some point in this season. I did promise. we have Kindred on the bill this season? Because I'm reading that. We didn't, but I've read that. So I guess maybe we could talk about Kindred. <laughs> it just got a show. I have to read it now or else I'll never get to see the show and then it will get canceled because my viewership won't have been there from the get go. You've heard it here first, folks. Kindred survival depends on Harmony Birch. Okay, well, that's all, folks. We'll talk to y'all next week. Goodbye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, Rebel Girls Book, dot club and clicking read along with the show you can follow us at rgbc pod on instagram at rebel girls book club on facebook at rebel girls book one on twitter and you can email us at rebel girls book club at gmail.com our theme song is called pretty boys make me feel ugly and it's by the gays See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.